This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. In this episode, an old friend returns. Together, we relax and celebrate the 12th anniversary of the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann. Aaron Harvey and I met one another and became friends in 2010 when we took our permaculture design course with Ben Weiss and Dylan Neighbor Cruz in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. After graduating, we stayed in touch when Erin returned to Ohio to begin her own farm, the Kale Yard. Erin was one of the first guests on the show back in the winter of 2013 when we talked about how she started the Kale Yard. If you haven't heard that, you'll find a link to the interview in the show notes. Today, we talk how life has changed over the last decade, including the transition of the Kale Yard from a market garden to a nursery business, and Aaron's current role as a farmer's market manager, and what that means for her, the farmers, and the community they serve. We also spend some time on her interest in propagating figs and other plants, the role of a hoop house and a greenhouse on her farm, and what Aaron sees in her future. Enjoy this conversation with Aaron Harvey, and I'll join you again after. I was trying to think, yes, what all has changed, what to catch you up on, but just baseline, like I live on a small farm in central Ohio and just am dabbling in market gardening at this point with a focus on a seasonal plant nursery, mostly edibles, vegetables, herbs, and some natives, some medicinals here and there, but that has become fun and manageable along with a full-time job. So it's a few seasons of crazy in the spring and then mostly subsides, although there's still a lot of plant crazy going on. I've spoken with a number of permaculture or permaculture adjacent folks over the years who found that a nursery business was a great place to dabble and play because the ability to sell to a market and to have that short season of growing and business then frees them up to do other things. And in many cases, it can be lucrative. And that's reflective of what I've been hearing and also reading with some of the books that have come out the last couple of years that nursery businesses are a good place to be. Yeah. After years of being a produce grower, the ability just to take a break, have your own garden for fun, like to go on a summer vacation. I've thought about other things like what could be compatible. I've thought, oh, like a seed saving operation that could be really compatible or things like that. The spring is crazy. Yeah, don't get me wrong, but at least it's not full court press eight months or whatever of farming. Mentioning that eight months, it's another conversation I've been having with some folks who are interested in transitioning to more of a permaculture lifestyle or wanting to go back to the land as like a rural revival to be on the ground. But in those conversations, a lot of times what emerges is wanting to have something that can still be treated like a day job because it's like, oh, I need to make sure that I can travel here at this time of the year because this is when my friends and I get together for this thing or I'm really into this particular hobby and this is the main convention one week a year that I have to get to, or those kinds of related interests that when we don't have a seasonal business or are working for someone else, we know what our vacation time will be and we can put that in and go. And I think about my early days when I was on the land 
in the years after our PDC. And just going away one evening, I had put out two trays of sunflower seedlings to start hardening them off. And while I was at a lecture on natural burials, we had one of the worst hailstorms in years come through, which wasn't on the radar or anything else. But all of a sudden, people's phones start beeping while we're sitting in this presentation. It's, oh, I guess we're going to be here for a while. Here's the storm rolling in. And I lost all of those seedlings. Yeah, when nature's your boss, you don't really get scheduled on vacation time. And that touches on something in the previous conversation we had, which I will be editing for release sometime after this one about more of your like technical updates about what you've been doing. Rather than this more casual piece, you are now the market manager for a food hub. And that work as a market manager You've always had some kind of a part-time stable employment while you've been farming. Yeah. For most of that time, it was about half time, like 20 hours a week. And I was lucky to have things that paired pretty well and gave me the flexibility to do Saturday market and dictate my schedule a little bit, which was really nice. And then my current job is a little more, I would say, like closer to my heart. I have chosen to take it on more full-time and let it more dictate my schedule because it is it goes all of a piece I'm still working on the same issues but just in a not as a farmer but in a different way and supporting other farmers still involved in agriculture and agricultural pursuits just not as a full-time grower for market right given my situation I thought and my skill set and everything maybe this way I can even make more of an impact than I could farming I don't have some of the the skills or the resources that some people who are full-time farming might have, or I just chose not to go in that direction, but at least with the background knowledge of what it's like to be a grower, hopefully I can be a better support to people who are in that field. And that's where I was involved in a conversation online recently. The journalist Shane Burley posted to Twitter about how that buying and eating the right kinds of foods, perhaps the worst conceivable type of activism, such as avoiding fast food and shopping at farmer's market as political acts. Those both seem like fine things, but let's not pretend it's taking down the capitalists, which then turned into a conversation about farmer's markets. And it was interesting because Shane, as a journalist, had certain insights into farmer's markets based on the time and energy that is required to go to market that for some farmers, they would be better off building their own farm stand or grocery store at their farm and building up the clientele to come there and buy directly from them, opposed to necessarily coming in and going to a market. And from my conversations over the years with farmers like you or at my local farmers markets or like talking with extension officers that... Farmers markets have a unique role to play in our agriculture, but the niche that they fill can vary widely depending on the community and where people are. Who are the managers and what are the values of the market? One person responded to this thread that they were wondering if they could put up a table to hand out pamphlets and flyers. And I was like, from all of my experience, if you find who the market manager is and talk to them, you can likely build a relationship that allows that opportunity but that it is on a case-by-case and market-by-market basis. And that this 
love and interest of small-scale agriculture varies so much depending on where you are in the country and how many people live there, the economics of that space. And it makes it feel like every farmer's market is an island itself. It definitely is very contextual. And I feel like I've lived in and heard about places where, like you described, maybe your time's better put in building infrastructure on your own farm is much more well, feasible or embraced. We both lived near-ish Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and I was always surprised that there wasn't a bustling farmer's market, but I think it's because there were so many on-farm opportunities for people to shop. And then I've heard, you know, I'm in Ohio that, like in Michigan, that's much more of a thing that you can go farm to farm, and there's just not much of that there, save like in Amish country. I think there's a lot more here in Ohio. So I think farmer's markets are more important here because you're just not going to get people driving to you. Maybe the customer base isn't as motivated either and have to make it easy for them. And then each market is its own beast. I feel like I, as a market manager, I've resisted or reacted to like their software now that makes it so easy. As a vendor, you can just apply to 20 markets all at the same time by filling out this form. And I'm like, I there's, there's particular things I want to know or ask Oops, I want to make you jump through <laughs> for our market because I respect its uniqueness and that it is truly a farmer's market, that it stays that way, that there's always agricultural producers at the heart of it, but also that it is a community space and some of those nonprofits with their pamphlets or whatever and kids' activities. That's part of it because I think people need that too, just community gathering as markets and just public spaces are thousands of years old and endangered right now. So that feels very important to me as well. As I think about this, is the market that you manage an indoor or an outdoor market? Yes, we have a, a traditional outdoor seasonal farmer's market as well as an indoor year-round market house. So the first is just you pay for your booth, you come, you do your own thing, our market house is primarily a consignment model with our smaller producers. I think I could talk about farmer's markets for a while because there are so many different pieces of them. When I was still living in central Pennsylvania, because I did live just outside of, yes, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, would go to the central market there quite a bit, and then relocated to Harrisburg. And there were three markets there that I frequented, primarily the Lemoyne Farmer's Market, which was an indoor year-round market. The market at the Harrisburg Farm Show was an outdoor market that ran throughout the growing season. And then I also would go to Farmers on the Square in Carlisle, which is more like yours, where it was a mixture of the indoor and the outdoor, that there was a building where, where certain vendors could sell year-round that everybody else could set up during the season outside. What I liked about most of those markets was that they were, if you will, like a mixed-use market. So you had your agricultural producers who were there selling their on-farm products, fruits, vegetables, things like that, directly to consumers. But then you also had people who were selling specialty products, perhaps, from their farms because they were raising a small herd of goats and turning that into goat milk soap that they were selling, but not selling the goat dairy directly. Or you would have some food trucks where you could buy food while you were there so you could eat and shop and go around. That's the outdoor market at Harrisburg where I spent most of my time, but like the Lemoyne market also had several restaurants inside. And so is your market one of those kind of like mixed use markets or do you focus primarily on the agricultural products? 
we have some artisans, we have soap and body care, and well, certainly cut flowers are an agricultural product as well, but a pretty nice range of things. Although I don't think we ever want to become too much of a craft market. We want to keep the farmer's market at heart, not that we couldn't partner with folks. And I think we have these kind of ideas about what a farmer's market should be from a producer side, but customers don't necessarily see these distinctions. They just want to have a good time and buy what they want to buy. So I think we have to be sensitive to that. We try to get food trucks. It's been quite a challenge lately to get them to stick. But yeah, we try to create that sort of mixed shopping environment. Thinking as the consumer, I really enjoy that, especially when the agricultural producers are at a grocery store equivalent kind of price point, as opposed to some of the markets that I've been to where it is definitely unique and boutique. And so it is hard to sometimes as a consumer to justify some of those costs compared to if I go and there are all of those like secondary producers who might have baked goods and things like that, then can go and I can grab lunch from them while I'm shopping or breakfast. And that's always fun. But yeah, like talking with some of the extension officers over the years that the price at a farmer's market is determined by not the market itself, but the consumers and how that can impact a farmer's ability to make the living that they're looking for. And even though I understand the economies of scale for a grocery store versus people who I'm buying from at the farmer's market, making the selection of what do I want to buy at the farmer's market, pay that extra for versus the things that are just perhaps staples that fill my larder that are outside my range at the market. It can be important to have a range of price points. And I think people like choice. Certainly the grocery stores think we like choice. (laughs) Where I am in Northern Virginia, we have a Saturday market. And I would say that it leans more heavily towards the secondary and tertiary farm products. So there's lots of baked goods. Some people bring commercially canned products and things like that. So being able to go and buy my fruits is a little bit more limited, but still being able to go and build those relationships with the people who are growing or creating the food that I eat is still just, it's a great experience. That's something I really wonder about is what is the right role for farmers markets to fill in that secondary tertiary level of product and particularly as people's demand evolves. And even like 10 years ago when I was looking at it from a producer's mindset, I was producing raw products. Well, it seems like the demand for raw products is going down as people become more and more accustomed to prepared foods, to take out, to DoorDash. And we would joke as especially vegetable farmers, like where we're supposed to like also now clean it for you, chop it up for you, cook it for you, feed it to you. Like where does it end? And then the sometimes it's just impossible, even if you wanted to take on some of those other activities, then the licensing involved is out of reach for a number of businesses and in a lot of locations. And so then are you just going to miss out on that? Or are we like fighting the good fight trying to teach people how to cook vegetables here, which also we don't have the time for? Talking with farmers about how thin margins can be on certain products versus others, raising those products with the thin margins 
is what draws a customer in or what they know that customer is going to buy every week than to be almost a loss leader to entice to buy these other items. And yeah, trying to balance that. And as a farm manager, are you looking for and considering those kinds of trends when you're looking at who you want to bring into the market? I think a lot of newer products that are now available at farmers markets are appealing, especially from a diversity of vendors perspective. Like we've been trying to grow our market, but you also want to be very careful about adding too much of the same thing. So just one more person with tomatoes is maybe not helpful, whereas somebody making their own peanut butter would be entirely new and different and not competing with anybody else. And then the more different kinds of things you have, the more time people are spending, the more of their grocery budget they may be able to throw your way to local producers and your market gets bigger, looks fuller, it becomes more of a gathering place. So definitely there's some appeal. I just think, at least for me personally, there is still a line of, and maybe it's more just <laughs> like, you know it when you see it, but just some things that are maybe a little too far removed from place. I'll put it that way. I do not envy trying to balance all of that and then thinking about making sure that the politics of the farmer's market remain healthy so that you don't have farmers getting upset with each other because, oh, there is another tomato vendor who's been brought in and you've got your other tomato vendor who's, this is going to cut into my sales now. Farmers don't get upset. What are you talking about? As if we didn't have enough to do, we also have found these other fun activities we can layer on. So because we're a 501c3 nonprofit in the state of Ohio, we can get a temporary liquor license and we can serve Bloody Marys on a Saturday morning. So we've got a few of those events in the mix, which tend to be really good days, but cannot be every week <laughs> from, a, from an organizational capacity perspective and not from a legality perspective. But that's really helped, I think, to get new people in. And then with that temporary liquor license, is that something then that you're able to use that to bring in like local distilleries and things like that to sell? Or is that more a you and your staff are mixing up Bloody Marys in between the farmer's stands. The first time we did it, it was really cool. And that the idea was with Bloody Marys, because you get lots of fun toppings, that each vendor offered a thing. And then people were supposed to go around and it made you go from booth to booth, see what was there, get your cherry tomato or whatever. And then we weren't able to do it for a couple of years. And then this year we did it again and we changed that model. So there was a little less mixing. We were trying to encourage, we didn't. So we put them on skewers and you just got your skewer and it was a ball too. And the way the liquor permits are, that has not really highlighted local producers. However, Ohio does have a farmer's market specific wine and hard cider liquor permit that we are testing. <laughs> I'll put it that way. It's been a good learning experience this season, but that would allow wineries that grow some percentage of their own grapes that bottle under a certain limit, blah, 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 to sell you two ounces or something. I'm really happy to see more and more of those kinds of permits and licenses coming along because of how they allow more producers to be at places where their customers are. 
and thinking as a consumer and my farmer's market experiences, two of my primary markets had wineries there. And so I could go pick up everything that I needed for dinner, grab a bottle or two of my favorite wine and head out. And it made the farmer's market more and more of a one-stop opportunity. With your nursery business and the stability of being a market manager and that work that you've had over the years of making sure that you had something in your back pocket that gave you the flexibility to experiment with these different things, even though you've shifted into a more full-time role, in continuing to grow plants for your nursery, are you breeding any of those plants for use, like taking cuttings and things like that? Or are you buying in seed to start them from seed? What does your nursery operation look like? For many years, like I said, the emphasis was on vegetables and herbs. And my line was like, everything started from seed here at the kale yard. Bigger nurseries, if you're not familiar, will buy in plugs and even finished plant material and just turn around and sell it. And so I wanted to distinguish that I was starting everything. I've not had a great setup for doing cuttings, although now I don't know that I can say that from seed bit because we've started like just playing with a lot of different plants. I've been taking fig cuttings and trying to learn how to propagate figs. And we have approximately 10,000 cactus for no reason. And those are very, and succulents, so those are just very easy to propagate. So that is happening, but still a tremendous amount of it is from seed. And each year I've been saving seed off of new things, either because I've grown them for the first time or they've matured. That is really fun to me. Like we wild harvested spice bush a couple of years ago and got one year I had success with getting those to Germany. And now I have finally planted some of those out in our field, not that they're flowering yet or anything. And then this year, some Baptisia that I was able to start from seed has now matured and I just saved seed off of it and I'm over the moon. Like, how cool is this? <laughs> So we'll see if I can get that to Germany next year. So things like that. So more and more is coming from seed I have saved. Not that I necessarily have a particular expertise in it. I've done mostly the easy stuff like tomatoes and things like that, but it's fun. We have half a dozen cactus that are probably nearly as tall as I am. And I'm like, how are we going to fit all these back into the greenhouse when winter comes and not make it be dangerous? <laughs> Those just became fun side project that then proliferated. I think we started with like one we got from a friend. And when you have a greenhouse, why not? Why not propagate things? And another one of my pet projects has been with curry leaf, which is at least I know it as popular in South India. Use it as you would a bay leaf, like use the, well, fresh leaves in cooking. And so I have an awful lot of those started. And I'm breaking the first rule of farming, which is don't grow something you don't have a market for. But I figure I've got about a year or two to figure it out. And then you've mentioned a greenhouse. You also have a hoop house, right? Yeah. So we have, there's two. The first greenhouse was a 20 by 60 tie tunnel style greenhouse with double wall poly that is inflated with roll up sides. And that is where the bulk of the stuff is in the spring. And then there's also a 12 by 16, 14 by 18, something like that little greenhouse with rigid sidewalls. And that one we do try to keep heated all winter. That's where all of our 
fun plants go. And then basically it's like a potting shed for me in the spring. It's really lovely to go out there in like March and April. And that's where things are when they're tiny. So we can eat less space pretty much. The walls of your hoop house are inflated? Yeah. So that there's roll-up sides to maybe four or five feet up. And then from there, the arch is two layers of plastic with a little blower that inserts and is plugged in and just a fan that keeps running and it keeps a pillow. And so that is good for shedding snow. And also I think just for the longevity of the plastic, like it keeps it from blowing around and beating on the ribs of the structure and stuff. Maybe it's a bit of insulation value, but. That's interesting because I've mostly seen hoop houses with a single layer of poly over top that are like used for three seasons at best. But it sounds though you're still using your greenhouse that you could potentially use your hoop house for four seasons if you wanted to heat it. But the rigid greenhouse is a better location because it's smaller and it meets your needs currently. Yeah, before that, I would partition the bigger one and try to just heat a smaller space early on in the season. But the last couple of years, we were just putting off heating that as long as possible. With your figs and experimenting with Growing those out, is that one of those other plants that you're moving into your greenhouse during the winter to allow them to grow, or are you become established outside already? I have two that are outdoors that were planted out about seven or eight years ago that have come back every year. Each year, I think, I've killed them. This is the year. And then they come back with a vengeance. They are in a fairly protected spot. And hardly ever bear fruit. I think last year was the first year we really got any fruit, but we had a pretty like late fall. It was warmer later. We didn't have any early killing frosts or anything. And so I've been trying to collect some different varieties that are supposed to be hardy here and early bearing to try to find what might work the best. So I think I have technically four varieties. Most of them are just the Chicago hardy at this point, because that has been the easiest to propagate from the existing mature plant. And then found a, an OSU extension trial they did that gave some advice. And it was basically saying, if you want appreciable amount of fruit, you really need to give them protection into the fall. So we have this greenhouse that's sitting there doing nothing in the fall. So I think or at least for this year, the idea is put them all in bigger pots, move them in there, see if we can't get more fruit that way. And then kind of just the one question mark for me that I want to try to figure out is then how to best insulate them over the winter, hopefully without having the heat, but maybe also playing around with planting some out in a south-facing slope. We talked about maybe just a seasonal hoop, low tunnel something over them for that reason maybe building another greenhouse. We always need an excuse to build another greenhouse. So it's kind of an experiment phase, but something I've been thinking about for several years because I do just really love things. And I've seen all kinds of images. If you throw the hashtag fig into social media in the fall, all the different pictures of people like, oh, they build a wire bale around it and then stuff that with straw, then wrap that with plastic and put a dome on top or some kind of plastic over top to keep it from getting wet. And it's just amazing all the ingenuity that goes into loving figs. We play, we try, we see what works, we see what fails. 
thinking about your figs and like moving them inside, you have the hoop house or high tunnel. If you had a lot of them to move into a large space, did the farm that you're on come with the greenhouse and the high tunnel or were those installed after you purchased it? Yeah, that was one of the first things I did to the property after purchasing it was I hired a crew to to put up the greenhouse because I, I had like toyed with the idea of having the nursery aspect of the business, but before I had a permanent location, it just didn't seem feasible. So I was very excited about that. So that was the idea. So I, the first fall I was here, winter, really, I think it started snowing when they were putting it up, that went up. And then the first spring I was fully here, I was able to start my own plants on my own property and for my own use, and then also have some to sell for the first time. The greenhouse that you have, did you like purchase a kit and have somebody come build it for you? Or did you find a company that builds greenhouses to do it? The first one, the high tunnel one, worked with Yoder's Produce in Ohio Amish country. They were great. They had it up in under a day. Spot on. Did a great job. Don't regret it at all. And then the other, the smaller one, my partner built with a kit. Here's all the pieces you need. But of course, he ended up like completely re-engineering how the whole thing went together. (laughs) So it's the kit. Plus. (laughs) Do you find that kit, though, is functional for your needs as both like potting shed and for the ability to overwinter? It is a great size. We can fit a lot in there without it being too big. It was meant to have vents at the peak. They ended up being at the base, which we just take them off all summer long, but it would be nice to have something at the top (laughs) for ventilation. It does have a fan. And then one of our hurdles has been trying to find the best way to heat it. So I don't know if the kit came with, but we had a big sort of insert style propane heater that was just fine, but went through a lot of propane. And then one winter, something with the valve, I'm not sure, caught the greenhouse wall on fire and it melted. So (laughs) we also toyed around with some different electric heaters because it is pretty close to the barn. But to run a heater of the size we would want, we would need some electrical upgrades, which we went down that path and weren't quite ready. So we've used sort of combination of electric heaters that'll cut it to about freezing and then some portable like tank top propane heaters to give supplemental heat when we need to. None of it's ideal. That's the one thing I would say is like, if we did another one, I think we would have a much better plan for how we're going to heat it from the get-go. And that's where I've seen many of the tiny like backyard greenhouse kits. They're like four by eight feet or 50 feet or less in size. But as I've looked into them further, they don't appear to be large enough to be functional other than as a potting shed or to start off in the spring that you can't use them for year-round growing for exactly those kinds of reasons because you spend so much time just trying to keep it warm if you're in a colder temperate climate and that there's i don't recall the exact number but i think it was like 250 square feet was the minimum recommendation that i'd run across for a small homestead size greenhouse because that's just large enough that you can do 55 gallon rain barrels in there, paint them black, fill them full of water to create thermal mass, 
so you don't have to heat it year round. With that and some solar gain and other things that you can use your heater less frequently, but it doesn't remove that entirely. That you really have to get into a very large insulated greenhouse to be able to use it year round without needing larger amounts of supplemental heat. But then also, if you're trying to make sure that you can save all of your 10,000 succulents and cacti and other things, it doesn't give you the same kind of room in something that size to implement those kinds of ideas. Your avocado tree and your tropical passion flower that won't ever bloom. And But honestly, the little greenhouse was built more for enjoyment, and I have colonized it with my nursery plant. But that also is where changing your scope allows you to be able to play with these things more. If you were on a short-term turnaround where you had one year to get a functional, financially viable farm up and running, it would require different planning from the get-go and different designs if you were going to be using a greenhouse or high tunnel, as opposed to the process that you went through where you just became a veggie market grower from the get-go and have been able to make these kinds of adjustments and enjoyments over time and then learn on the ground and know that if you want to do something that would be year-round growing, then if it's with the greenhouse you have, then you change your heating system or you build a larger greenhouse that is designed from the ground up to have a heating system and things like that. But you're in a different position from someone who might need to be making those kinds of decisions from the very beginning. And you're really well positioned to move and change as you need or want to. I've been lucky in that regard. With where things have gone, moving from being a veggie gardener to a market manager, still running the nursery, having an old house in Ohio to restore as you build out the rest of your farm. Where do you see the future taking you in the next five or 10 years? What are your dreams and goals and what gets you up in the morning? My goals in the next few years anyway, just for like myself are to focus a little bit more on the property, more enjoyment and some of the reasons I chose this kind of place to begin with. I think, I think that having a full-time job and running the greenhouse as a business has taken up certain times of year, all my time so that the garden and the landscaping and house projects and perennial planting have fallen by the wayside. And I think this spring, summer, I realized like the scales tipped a little too far in that direction. So I do want to focus on some property and home improvements. I go to other people's properties and they have like lovely sitting places and I don't know. And then Oh, yeah. Yeah. It'd be nice to also enjoy it here and not just feel like it's slog or the get done with nursery stuff the end of May and you still haven't even touched your own garden. And then that just feels like a battle the whole rest of the season to try to do prep and bite weeds and be planting when it's really hot and really dry and it's just not fun anymore. So try to reverse some of that. And then I think some of the projects that are fun could really turn into something new in the future, whether that's the figs or some other like value-added kind of products we've talked about it. And some more diverse things once some of the perennials are established that are still like sitting in pots <laughs> a few years later, you know, that kind of a thing. 
work on the development side of the property, such as perhaps a three-season sitting area. And then once that's done, you can move into maintenance mode for those things where it takes less of your time and energy or even thoughts as you remind yourself of needing to do these pieces. And then that gives you the time and space that you're looking for to work on some of these other projects. And the, the house could use some TLC and there's a lot of dying trees that are about to come down that'll be able to reboot one whole side of the property, which is exciting. It's a good excuse to think a little bit more about plantings and what sort of things we could want or use. So yeah, focus on that for a little bit. I can only imagine what is involved then when you need to call contractors and have them come out. You need to find somebody with a skill set to take care of something or wanting to learn the skill and then the time to get those materials and take care of it yourself. There's just a lot to living in general and then the permaculture or rural living lifestyle that takes a lot of time and skills that folks who want to do that may need to work on and develop. Yeah, it's meaning the right balance of which of those things you're going to do yourself and which you're going to outsource, <laughs> whether it's the field labor or the everyday living stuff. I really appreciate everything that you've shared with us and just this relaxed conversation about where your life has taken you and the insights into life professionally as someone who has been a market gardener as well as a farm market manager. But in the couple of minutes we have remaining, is there anything else that you'd like to speak to or just in general share with the listeners? The only other piece that kind of has been rolling around in the back of my mind, and I never know how to say this like articulately or that somebody isn't going to challenge me in a way that I would know what to say is, I guess I played at farming as a business <laughs> and never 100% went into it. But And I think part of that is because I was resisting the idea of farming as capitalism. Like when you try to fit those things together, like probably not going to work very well because they're different systems like regenerative agriculture, permaculture, and trying to make a living and pay for all your things in with the demands of a, like a capitalist system. And so when I think about what do I want to do with it, or people ask me like, oh, you're going to be a full-time farmer. I feel like that's a false question. Like, I feel like it is more of a lifestyle choice. And that sounds very floofy, but I don't mean it in that way. I mean that it is more than a job. And so when you have to think about it as your job, that is limiting or not entirely truthful to what it should be. You're not going to make the choice to try to farm full time. The equally interesting question is then what can you do while still having the job and doing the things that valuable or interesting and useful? And that was Erin Harvey. You can find her and her work at thekaleyardohio.com. If you live near Lancaster, Ohio, check out the website if you're looking for plants for your garden that are grown by a plant specialist familiar with permaculture. In future episodes, I'd like to have more old friends and past guests back on the show. If there is someone you've heard on the podcast from the first decade that you'd like to hear from again, let me know so I can reach out to them and have another conversation like this one. If you're a patron, you can let me know by leaving a direct message. If you follow me on social media, 
whether Permaculture Pod on Twitter or Permaculture Podcast on Instagram, feel free to send me a direct message there. Otherwise, if you'd like to get in touch, visit thepermaculturepodcast.com and use the contact form to send me an email. However you get in touch, I'd love to hear from you and know who you'd like to return as a guest. Until I hear from you, or our next time together, spend each day creating incrementally and doing the work you love while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.